Hey, it's your host, Shannon Ballard. A reminder for you that if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a member on Patreon. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mystery Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southern mysteries to join today. Rosewood was once a thriving black community in rural Levy County, Florida. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, the rate of black owned businesses and homes was higher in this community than in a majority of communities in the country. There was such promise and hope for the future of Rosewood until January, 1923, when one woman made an accusation that led to the injury and murder of dozens of innocent people in Rosewood and led the rest of the community to flee. Forced to abandon the homes and businesses they worked so hard to build as angry white mobs moved through the community and set it on fire. All that remains of the once thriving community today is a few old buildings and one home. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the story of the Rosewood Massacre. In 1819, the Florida Purchase Treaty was signed by Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. That agreement saw Spain hand over control of their province of Old Florida to the United States. The U.S. began a formal occupation of the Florida Territory in 1822, governed by the military hero of the War of 1812, General Andrew Jackson. By 1845, Florida was admitted to the Union as a slave state. Before 1821, Florida was a unique part of the country, with areas like St. Augustine standing out as one of the most integrated towns in the country. It operated as a rather race-neutral area. But with admission to the Union as a slave state, Florida transformed into the plantation model of the rest of the South, driven as a chattel slavery state with strong racial divides. That tension escalated after the Civil War and Reconstruction era. With the 1920s came the second rise of the KKK and increased racial terror lynchings and hate crimes, like the events that unfolded in Perry, Florida in December 1922. Ruby Hendry, a white school teacher, was found murdered and the community immediately believed Charles Wright, a black man who had recently arrived in the area, had murdered Ruby. Despite no evidence of his involvement in the crime, Wright was arrested for murder and quickly taken from the jail by an angry white mob. Charles Wright was lynched, burned at the stake by that mob. Still angry and blaming all black people in Perry for the murder of this white teacher, the mob proceeded to burn down the black school, amusement hall, church, and several homes. Convinced Charles Wright didn't act alone, two other black men would be lynched before the mob dispersed. Within a month, the community of Rosewood would come face to face with that hate that had been unleashed on Perry, Florida. Rosewood was settled by white and black families 
1845, named for the red color of cedar trees that were cut in the timber mill in town, Rosewood thrived until the mill began to run out of trees to cut down. This led to a big change in the community. A majority of the white residents took jobs in and chose to move to nearby Sumner, where they worked in turpentine and sawmills. A majority of black residents remained in Rosewood and traveled to nearby Cedar Key to work in pencil factories that had opened there, and some opened their own businesses in Rosewood. By 1870, the community had a post office and a train depot on the Florida Railroad. Despite the opportunity for growth with the train depot in the community, Rosewood was never incorporated as a town. Until 1923, there had been no violent incidents between the black community of Rosewood and the white community of Sumner. As is always the case, all it took was one little spark to light the fire of racial tension and hatred. That spark came from a white woman, 22-year-old Fanny Taylor, who accused a black man of assaulting her. Fanny was the wife of James Taylor, a foreman at the Sumner Sawmill. On New Year's Day, 1923, Fanny ran from her home screaming for help. Neighbors came running, asking what had happened. Word spread to the mill that there was a problem at home, and James Taylor showed up, asking Fanny what had happened, why she was so upset. Fanny told him a black man had forced his way into their home, robbed her, and beaten her. She had bruises on her arms, and her face was red and flushed. Fanny Taylor did not say she had been sexually assaulted, but the men who gathered around and heard Fanny's story refused to believe her insisted she must have been violated. And Fanny had been hurt, had fought with someone in her home that day, but it wasn't a black man. Sarah Carrier, a black woman from Rosewood, worked as a laundress for the Taylors. On the day of the incident, she witnessed a white man she did not know enter the Taylor home. Later, she heard Fanny screaming and arguing with this man. And soon after, Fanny ran from the house screaming that she had been attacked by a black man. But the man who had attacked Fanny Taylor was the white man she had been having an affair with. The lovers had a fight that day. Things had escalated and Fanny was assaulted by her lover. And seemed to decide to cover up her affair, she should cry out that a black man she didn't know had attacked her. Now that lie Fanny told, which was a lie that led to a great number of racial terror lynchings in the American South, well, that lie led to death and destruction in Rosewood. Fanny's husband, still unaware that his wife had taken a lover, reported the attack to the sheriff of Levy County, Robert Elias Walker. James Taylor gathered friends from the sawmill and told them they were going to hunt down the black man who had hurt his wife. These friends, well, some of them were members of the KKK. The Klan was holding a large gathering in Gainesville, about 50 miles from Rosewood. Word of James Taylor's desire to track down the black man, he believed to have attacked his wife, reached the gathering of about 500 Klan members and fueled their hatred. Many of those Klan members 
headed to Rosewood to join the search for a black man named Jesse Hunter. Hunter had escaped a nearby chain gang just days before Fannie Taylor's attack. Sheriff Walker told Taylor it must have been Hunter who hurt his wife. Walker organized a posse, deputizing a dozen locals to head to Rosewood on January 4th, with Sheriff Walker saying that because Jesse Hunter was black, he must be headed to the black community where he would find protection with his people, as Walker put it. But that small posse Walker organized would continue to grow out of control and turn into an angry white mob as hundreds of KKK members arrived from Gainesville. They arrived angry and ready to carry out their rage on Rosewood. The men went door to door threatening and beating residents. And it's important to know that Sheriff Walker knew and respected a lot of the families who lived in Rosewood, especially the Carrier family, one of the largest and most prominent families in the community. Walker worried that innocent people in Rosewood would get hurt, so he and his small group of deputies began working their way through Rosewood, telling residents to shelter in place in their homes and businesses. This was his attempt to calm the situation in Rosewood. But the mob splintered and headed out to cover the whole town in their search for Jesse Hunter. Some of the mob headed to the home of Aaron Carrier, who was the nephew of Sarah Carrier. The mob heard his aunt worked for the Taylors and thought Aaron could have been the one who attacked Fanny Taylor. Aaron Carrier was taken from his home, tied to a car, and dragged to Sumner, where he was beaten. When Walker saw the white mob dragging Aaron to a tree, he knew this man was about to be lynched. Sheriff Walker stepped in, took Aaron into protective custody, and drove him to safety in Gainesville. Another mob encountered Sam Carter, the Rosewood blacksmith, at his home. They asked if Carter knew where Jesse Hunter was. When Carter said he had no idea where Hunter was, didn't know him, he was kidnapped and tortured. In his pain and desperation, Sam Carter broke down. He lied to the men, saying he knew where Jesse Hunter had been earlier in the day because he had helped him. Carter led the men to a wooded area where he claimed to have seen Hunter, but that act did not save Sam Carter. One of the men shot Carter in the head. Several others took his lifeless body and hung him from a tree. Sam Carter would be the first of many innocent people killed during the attack on Rosewood. Another group of white men headed to the home of Sarah Carrier. Sarah had opened up her home to 25 people offering protection during the attack. A majority of those she took in were children. Sarah tried to keep the calm that night as a large group of armed white men surrounded her house, yelling that they knew Jesse Hunter was inside. Sarah cried out that there was no Jesse Hunter inside and begged the men to leave. The white attackers responded by firing shots into Sarah's house. Sarah Carrier and her husband were shot and died in their home. Their son, Sylvester, fought back. 
He had a gun, and after the mob had started shooting into the home and killed his parents, Sylvester returned fire and shot and killed two of the white men. The standoff and exchange of fire lasted through the night at the carrier home. It ended early the next morning when the mob stormed the house and shot and killed Sylvester Carrier. Before he died, Sylvester told the children in the home to run out the back door and not stop running. They escaped into a nearby swamp where they hid until the Rosewood attack ended. The fact that this black man, Sylvester Carrier, had defended himself, returned fire, killed two white men who were trying to kill him, had killed his parents. Well, when word of this spread, the Klan used it as a way to urge more white men to come to Rosewood and help in their war against black people in the community. Papers ran with a story supporting the Klan's version of events and printing false news. They printed the story of the attack of Fanny Taylor, claiming she had been raped by a black man. They also printed stories about groups of black men taking up arms in retaliation for the violence in Rosewood and that a full-on race war was unfolding there. For white men, members of the Klan, this was their greatest fear, an uprising and a threat to white supremacy. Within days, the mob swelled with even more Klan members arriving in Rosewood having traveled from other parts of Florida and Georgia. They joined hundreds of men tearing through Rosewood and destroying everything in sight. They started with one place people feel safe, churches. The mob did this to send the clear message that no black person was safe in Rosewood. They then moved on to burn homes. Remember, the people of Rosewood had been told by the sheriff to shelter in place. As their homes were set on fire, residents ran to escape. Some men and women and children were injured or killed as they attempted to run from their burning homes. Lexi Gordon was one of those killed that night. When the mob set her home on fire, she hid in the only place she could take cover, under her burning house. That's where a man found her and shot and killed her. Her sister, who was suffering from typhoid fever, was so weak she could not run, but she managed to make it into the cellar under the house. She remained there for days with only sips of water to sustain her. We know much of the story of the Rosewood Massacre because she survived and was able to tell the story of what she witnessed. Others who had run from their homes made it safely into nearby swamps where they would remain in hiding for days. Some did try to leave, but some of Sheriff Walker's posse members ordered them to stay, saying the swamp was safer for them. But not everyone got word that leaving the swamp could put them in even more danger. James Carrier, Sarah Carrier's other son, left the swamp and fled to a local turpentine factory. White men saw him and a mob took him to a wooded area and ordered him to dig a grave. They forced him to kneel and shot him to death in his own grave. 
As the violent attack on Rosewood continued, the owner of the only home spared offered families shelter. John Wright and his family were one of the only white families who called Rosewood home. He ran the general store and told Sheriff Walker that his home was a safe place for any black family. Sheriff Walker helped several people escape to the right home. In the midst of this violence and unrest, Florida Governor Kerry Hardy reached out to Sheriff Walker, offered to send in the National Guard for support and protection of Rosewood. Walker said he had spoken to a few local sheriffs who were moving in to help calm the situation, and Walker refused the governor's offer of help, said things were handled. While angry white men were burning down Rosewood, unleashing havoc and destruction for days, Governor Hardy was out of office on a hunting trip. Between January 3rd and January 7th, the community of Rosewood was destroyed, with most of the structures being burned to the ground. And due to a lack of a full investigation, we'll never know exactly how many people died and suffered injuries as a result of the Rosewood massacre. We know at least six black people and two white people were killed during the week. Some accounts say those numbers are significantly higher. As to the Rosewood survivors, those who had sought refuge in the nearby swamp, they had to get to safety. There was no going home again. There was nothing but smoldering homes and businesses in Rosewood and reminders of the terror that had been unleashed on so many innocent people. Two white men, brothers, John and William Bryce, offered a train they owned as a means of transportation to evacuate survivors to Gainesville. They extended their offer to black women and children, but they had one condition. They refused to let black men ride the train because they were afraid a white mob would get word and attack the train. Sheriff Walker accepted the Bryce brothers' offer of support and worked to secretly help black men escape to Gainesville to be reunited with their families who had ridden the train there. Governor Hardy did order a special grand jury be impaneled and a special prosecutor investigate the violence. 30 witnesses, almost all of them white, testified during the proceedings, but the grand jury found there wasn't enough evidence to indict anyone for the death and destruction in Rosewood. The trauma of what happened in Rosewood lingered for generations. Survivors never returned home, were forced to move to new towns and cities after all they had worked so hard to build was taken from them. Newspapers barely covered the aftermath of the massacre or the grand jury. People just stopped talking about it. Some refused to believe it had even happened, which left victims with shame and fear. They felt that if they talked about it, no one would believe them and they could be attacked again. Why wouldn't you believe that? Because if an angry white mob can get away with invading a growing and economically booming black community and burning it to the ground, who's to say they wouldn't do it again? Those survivors lived in fear and silence for 60 years until some of them 
in their 80s and 90s agreed to share their stories. Arnett Doctor was a descendant of Rosewood survivor Philomena Goins. Following his mother's death, Doctor traveled all over Florida, interviewing and talking to survivors. He said he became obsessed with knowing more about the week of the Rosewood massacre and the impact it had on all of the survivors. It was Doctor who convinced some of them to open up and share their story. In 1982, Doctor contacted investigative journalist Gary Moore at the St. Petersburg Times. Moore agreed to write a series of articles featuring survivor accounts, and he addressed the reality of Rosewood being written off, virtually ignored as part of Florida history, writing, after a week of sensation, the weeks of January 1923 seemed to have dropped completely from Florida's consciousness, like some unmentionable skeleton in the family closet. It was our net doctor's work with survivors and Gary Moore's articles that led to Rosewood becoming a national story. Doctor advocated for reparations for Rosewood victims and a high power law firm took on the case, pushed for legislation to compensate victims. Four Rosewood survivors testified during hearings, sharing their painful stories publicly for the first time. In April, 1994, the Florida House passed the Rosewood Compensation Bill, awarding victims $2 million and an educational fund for descendants. Then Florida Governor Lawton Childs spoke these words as he signed the Rosewood Compensation Bill. Because of the strength and commitment of these survivors and their families, the long silence has finally been broken and the shadow has been lifted. In 2004, the state of Florida declared Rosewood a state heritage landmark. A historical marker was placed just off the state road that leads to the remains of the once thriving community. Rosewood descendants have created the Rosewood Heritage Foundation and the Real Rosewood Foundation to ensure the story of what happened in 1923 is never forgotten. Lizzie Jenkins is the niece of a Rosewood school teacher. She serves as the executive director of the Real Rosewood Foundation, which preserves Rosewood's history. She says her motivation to continue to share the story of Rosewood is all about truth and legacy because she promised her mother she would keep the story alive. Lizzie says, it's been a struggle telling this story over the years because a lot of people don't want to hear about this kind of history. People don't relate to it or just don't want to hear about it. But mama told me to keep it alive, so I keep telling it. It's a sad story, but it's one I think everyone needs to hear. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can read more about the history of Rosewood, the people who lived there, and those involved in the Rosewood Massacre, and see photos and sources from this episode in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Now, if you like Southern Mysteries, I encourage you to join me on Patreon. 
Members hear bonus monthly content called Southern Mysteries Shorts. Special thanks to my new patrons, Genevieve, along with Jason from Stoke-on-Trent. I so appreciate your patronage because each new member supporting the show helps ensure Southern Mysteries continues. If you want to join Genevieve and Jason as patrons, sign up today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries to support this little independent podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button where you're listening now so you never miss a new episode. And if you'd like to to help out in a different way, you can rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening now to let other folks know they should try out the show. Thanks so much for listening. 